Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie. I have a return guest. Her name is attorney Ingrid Irwin. She is from Australia, and she's also an author. We covered a lot of information on the last time she was on the show, which was November 16th, 2021, season two, episode 130. We were talking about her books. The first one, is Dolly Incapax in 2018, which means accused is deemed incapable of criminal intent, guilty mind due to the young age of 10 to 14 years old. And this is also her memoir, and her pen name is Cleopatra Jones. Then she had written a second book called Null Prosequi in 2020, which means do not prosecute. This is a call to action and critically assesses the latest developments in the law in this area from 2018 to present day. This is published under her name, Ingrid Irwin. So I welcome you back again, Attorney Irwin. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Marianne. It's a pleasure to be back. Um, This is just a topic. It's my baby. I could talk about it endlessly. So the more podcasts, the better, because it gets the message out there Mm -hmm. as to the barriers that survivors face. So I'm just really pleased to be back with you. I'm pleased to have you on because I know you're going to come back on again too. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Repeat guest. I'd love to be. (laughs) Definitely. We covered a lot of material the last time you were on, and um, it was just amazing what yes. I learned. And uh, now yes. we've got we've got to cover your second book, and, and <laughs> yes, talk about. Yes, I think. Look, before I launch into you know uh, the the material that I talk about in the second book, I thought it might help be helpful to listeners just to give a bit of a recap, so mm-hmm. it will put into context you know, where I'm coming from in the second book. So I thought I'd just cover a little bit of what we spoke about last time. Um, And just really what I wanted to stress is the massive chasm that there is between the spin about sex assault that survivors are fed through the media, you know, TV and newspapers, um, and the reality for survivors. So really last time I focused on that and I Mm -hmm. wanted to... I'm almost trying to save survivors from going through the same legal potholes that I and so many of my clients have gone through. We all end up going through the same potholes. Um, And I spoke about Marita Murphy, another wonderful advocate and survivor, and her legal potholes. And I think it's just really important for people to understand that there is a spin factory. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are certain um, advocates in the media and people with a platform that will tell you, be brave and tell, tell about your abuse. I see you, I hear you, I believe you. We care about victims here. You know, we have a victim's charter and, um, you know, we care about you here at Victoria Police. All of these things, be brave and tell and you'll get justice just like me. All of that sounds wonderful to survivors. It's music to our ears because we think finally we can creep out from the darkness and tell and be respected and actually get justice and get a response. And, 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 and also through us advocating for ourselves, we can, you know, help others and we can stop perpetrators from reoffending against other people, you know, in our family and groups that we know. And all of this helps buoy us into this amazing sense of, um, you know, autonomy and, and hope. And so it propels us to the police station where we finally tell. And so what I spoke about last time is, although that sounds wonderful, welcome to the land of reality. 
down at the police station and at the courts, what happens to you is far from what you hear in the media. You get trampled on. Even well-meaning people trample on you just by doing their job, ticking the box, trying to help you, following all the protocols and procedures to help you as a survivor and being, you know, so-called survivor friendly. What I went through last time in the podcast was to show some of the many potholes and how it's not actually victim friendly. For example, having a dog to pat in a courtroom seems right. like you're really victim focused, but that is not going to bring you justice. That's emotional support. What victims need is legal support. And currently in America and Australia and so many countries, we don't have legal support for victims. We have emotional support. We have handholders. We have things that look good, you know, to the masses and give them the illusion that it's victim friendly. But victims actually face the same barriers that they always have. And so Today, I thought I'd delve into some of the problems with criminal justice. Mm -hmm. So this is different to civil justice. And we talked a bit about civil justice last time because really when you look at the media, some survivors are getting confused. Civil justice, victims are getting success there, but there needs to be an institutional link. And I went through that to say, otherwise you're spending a lot of money to have this pyrrhic victory where you can't really get money against your abuser if they're poor or an everyday person. You're going to spend more in legal costs than what you seek to gain. And only a small percentage gain unless there's, you know, a big fat institution with, you know, big deep pockets that you can, it's worth suing them. So as as we said last time, most sex assault is familial. You know, it's people that you know and someone in your family. So those big payouts that you might see on TV from time to time do not apply to the bulk, and I mean 99% of survivors. So that's what we spoke about last time, and we sort of fleshed that out and some of those ideas. I'm speaking about my direct experience as a lawyer and also as a survivor. And I just want to remind everyone out there that might be listening to this that I too am a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. And so even though I'm a lawyer, um, it's, it's more my experience as a complainant going through what I used to put my clients through that has given me this information and the anger that propels me into advocacy. So today, Marianne, <laughs> I thought we'd look at yeah. my second book, Nolly Prosequi, and look at, um, well, first of all, what it means. What it means is basically no prosecution. So in other words, a decision, it's an old legal um, Latin term that means we're not going to prosecute, nolly prosequi. So why I put titled that as my book is that only 1% of cases end in a conviction. So really what you want to talk about when sex assault is 99% aren't prosecuted. They, they get no conviction. So they often end in this legal term is still used, this old um, Latin term, nolly prosequi. And that's where really in practical terms, it means that the prosecution withdrew the case. So your prosecutor, your state prosecution service decides that they're gonna withdraw the case against your perpetrator for whatever reason and at whatever stage of a case. So you can have you know, a trial that started and then they're just somewhere on any given day, they can withdraw it you know, due to whatever it is, whatever their reasons are. But again, the survivor can't have a legal say and say, hold on, this needs to continue. Hold on, why are we stopping this case? This is crazy. What, there's enough evidence. I'm ready, I'm brave, you know, but they still pull the plug so, so often. And so, you know, if we've got this 1% conviction rate, um, and we spoke about that last time, really you can't say that survivors are getting 
Augustus for being brave and coming forward. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, let's look at the current things that are happening in Australia and in America about people, yes, being brave, coming forward, people delving into this area and looking at how we can change the legislation to help survivors. And in Australia, we have had a huge focus on the land of consent because previously our legislation said that consent was really about whether or not the perpetrator thought that the victim was consenting. Now, if they didn't think that it was consenting, we had what's called a reasonable belief that they were consenting. And so it's this mistaken reasonable belief of consent that used to get perpetrators over the line. But now we've changed it. We're introducing legislation in Australia um, that completely changes the idea of consent and you actually have a much better success rate when you change the definition because there was always that loophole that they said, oh, well, I, I thought that she was consenting. Now, the thing is, when you break it down, every perpetrator, if they're asked that question, is going to say they thought that the victim was consenting. I mean, it's just obvious <laughs> because, you know, they plead not guilty and, you know, their defence is that they thought that the person was consenting because um, last time I covered that there are two elements to prove a criminal um, case, right? There's the guilty act and the guilty mind. So, you know, there's the act. You can prove that someone, you know, did rape you. There can be, you know, DNA evidence or something mm -hmm. like that that's always manna from heaven in these cases. Mm -hmm. But again, even if you have that DNA evidence, you also need to prove the guilty mind. So you need to prove the intent of the person to rape you. And this is where it would always fall apart for victims because they might say, yeah, sure, we had sex. Yep, I agree. We, we did. Yes, I don't deny that. But I didn't do it without consent i thought she was consenting oh she you know murmured or something or whatever it was mm -hmm. so now we've tightened up that whole area which is wonderful because i mean obviously it was just pathetic the way our legislation dealt with this um, but what i want to talk about today is that even in the face of all this advocacy and legislative change which means changing the law and how it's structured in our statutes and our acts of parliament even when we change that I'm here to say, and this second book tells you, that you're still not going to get justice. It does not really matter how perfect our legislation is. And I'll tell you why. What we've got is a whole series of legal protections and presumptions afforded to the defendant. And what that means is things like burden of proof. The burden mm -hmm. is on the prosecution to prove it so that that, that, that act happened. It's not up to the defendant to say, oh, no, well, I didn't do it. It's up to the prosecution to prove that they did. So mm -hmm. already the victim is on the back foot, right? And, mm -hmm. the, and, the, and the perpetrator is already in a beautiful position. All they have to sit is do is sit there essentially. And the second problem is not just the burden is on the prosecution to prove what happened to us as a victim. The second issue is the standard of proof. So you've got the burden of proof and you've got the standard. The standard of proof in criminal matters is beyond all reasonable doubt. Now, Mary-Anne, mm -hmm. this is easy for someone like my husband, who is a mm -hmm. criminal defence lawyer, but it's so easy to prove that basically there is a reasonable doubt. My mm -hmm. husband does not stress over this. He says it's easy to raise reasonable doubt. Think about a case and think about how many things could raise a reasonable doubt 
He said, it's just basic. He said, I know that my client's going to win because I can always, always create a reasonable doubt in the false narrative that is put out. But he said, it's not up to me to determine whether it's false or not. When a client gives him instructions, it's not up to John as, as the person's lawyer to determine whether they're telling the truth or not. That is not John's role. He takes what they say as what we call instructions. It doesn't have to be the truth. How would John as a defence lawyer ever know whether you know, they're telling the truth or not? He might have a gut instinct, but that isn't the barometer that we as a legal system in our society should use is the defence lawyer's gut instinct. So John and all defence lawyers out there across all countries, they receive instructions, which is just their client's word as to what's happened, their story, their narrative. And so then what John does is turn that into, you know, the legal narrative that is going to be put out there. And so this is what happens. John's job is to raise reasonable doubt. So he represents his client, but in doing so, the aim is to raise reasonable doubt against what the victim is saying. Now, Marianne, if it's a 1% conviction rate, you can already see, as I said, it's easy to raise reasonable doubt. So even if we have perfect legislation about what rape really is, and we've changed it too. We have this new stealthing law because a lot, you know, stealthing is where um, the alleged perpetrator removes the condom without the victim knowing. And so the sexual intercourse is happening, but they think it's protected sex and it's not. And so that's stealthing. And we've got new legislation in Australia about that. But again, it's, it's, it sounds great. It sounds like we've really got it covered. We're looking at sexual assault in all its various forms. And that's just a wonderful thing. But what it leads to is perfect legislation, but that still can't get up in a courtroom. And this is the problem. Until we change the standard of proof back lower down to the civil standard, I suggest the civil standard, and I'll tell you why in a minute, but the civil mm. standard is on the balance of probabilities. And on the balance of probabilities makes sense because think about it. All the cases in the media that we're hearing about against you know, very famous sex offenders they, the perpetrators are sometimes successful in a civil jurisdiction because they only have to prove it on the balance of probabilities, which is much easier. Balance of probabilities is just 51%. 51% likely. So more likely than not. It doesn't have to be 100%, 90%, 80%. Just has to get over the line. 51%, so more likely or not. Now, that's how these cases are getting traction, right, mm -hmm. for sexual assault that we hear about. What would be so crazy about making the criminal standard the same for sex assault? For other things, we can keep it high. For murder or other, other areas of law that work, that get at better conviction rates, we can keep it at beyond all reasonable doubt, right? But I say in sex assault, it's a special area. It's an area that's very hard to prove and very, very difficult for survivors to tell. So I think we need to change the standard. And so that's the legislative change we need. We need to have criminal law with a different standard to criminal. I know it sounds just totally crazy, but if we think about it, what's crazier is this, right? We tell in a criminal jurisdiction and we don't get anywhere as a survivor, right? Only 1% of us get success and get a conviction. But then if I jump into a civil jurisdiction and I want to sue my perpetrator, right, where I couldn't get him criminally charged and convicted, I jump into a civil standard and I want to sue him, I will be successful. And that's what happened to me, 
right? I was successful suing him in a civil standard by perpetrator, but even though the police dropped the case criminally. Now, to me, that is a definition of legal insanity mm-hmm. because you're getting up against someone that was proved not guilty in a criminal thing, but what they're guilty is in a civil sense, like in terms of I'm using guilt loosely there. What I mean is that you can get attraction against someone. Someone can pay you. Now, last time I checked, no one pays you money if they didn't do it. (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is rather than have this ridiculous thing where survivors have to jump through a criminal case and then a civil case, why not just have it a criminal case and it's a one-stop shop and you get justice there because you're using the lower standard. That is what I advocate because otherwise all of these advocates in Australia that are busy changing the legislation and, you know, getting lots of applause for doing so again, we're still going to have perfect legislation, but nowhere to go with it. Cause mm-hmm. in a, in a practical sense, we've still got that impossibly high standard of proof. And so getting rid, rid of the standard of proof, is the only answer to actually getting, you know, convictions under our belt in this area. So that's really important. But there are more problems with getting justice for sex assault, right? Mm -hmm. When I talk about the legal um, safeguards afforded to the defendant, where that comes from is that idea that the worst thing that can happen to a person is for them to be wrongfully jailed right? Mm -hmm. And we've got beautiful movies about that. Shawshank Redemption, okay, with Morgan Freeman. We love that idea that, you know, no one should go to jail wrongfully. And so, you know, that would be our worst fear that we would accidentally find someone guilty who isn't guilty, blah, blah, blah. And this is the stuff of Hollywood and movies. And and even I fell for it. I love that idea, you know, and someone there finds the truth and then tries to free them out of jail. Wonderful, wonderful. But see, that narrative, it's, it's like a Cinderella narrative. Okay, mm-hmm. it happens from time to time, but the bulk of people that sexually offend don't get anywhere near prison, they don't even get community service because they're not even found guilty. As I said, one percent are found guilty, but get convicted. So, our fear, our overarching fear of, of the law somehow imprisoning you know, wrongfully people that are innocent is really just, I think, we need to bury it with a lot mm-hmm. of you know you know, politically incorrect fairy tales. It's just, it just really very rarely happens. So these protections, again, another one is your right to silence, okay? Mm -hmm. Because the burden is on the prosecution to prove that they did it, the defendant has a right to silence. Now, while that initially might seem fair and good, what I say is as the criminal case develops and certain things may or may not happen, We need to tinker with their right to silence. I'm not saying get rid of it straight away, but I'm saying if someone in a pretext call actually admits what they did, because often that's what the police do, they'll get you to make this call to your perpetrator. And if they subsequently admit, we should get rid of that right to silence. They should have to answer Mm -hmm. because they've admitted it. But currently our system allows them to still remain their right to silence. And I think you're kidding me. Once they've confessed, surely then we need a new pathway that says, okay, well, if you confess, then you lose your right to silence. But, you know, you're still not immediately found guilty, but you should have to answer. So that's Mm -hmm. another change that we desperately need to um, make. And then the other thing we need to look at is their right to reserve making a plea until after the committal hearing. That should go as well. When you make a plea, you shouldn't have the luxury of waiting to hear the weight of evidence against you 
before whether you plead guilty or not guilty. I think that is an indulgence that needs to stop. We are putting victims through like a mini trial first, which is called the committal hearing, then to ultimately have the actual trial. And this whole thing has to stop too, because what that does is create opportunities for different retells of the story by the victim. And I don't mean different retells as in one's the truth and one, one they're lying. I mean every retell will have a variation. So why would you have a victim going through two separate retells? Because it just creates these you know, differences, minor differences that then people like my husband and other defence lawyers come in and hone in on and, right. you know, make them look like they're an unreliable witness. Mm -hmm. Because again, that's the whole thing. We are put on trial, that we, the victim, are put on trial, not really the defendant. I, I, my argument is they're not really put on trial. The victim is, mm -hmm. and it's all about how believable the victim is on each occasion that we put them through another legal hurdle. And so it's ridiculous. I think to myself often, if we put a defendant through all those legal hurdles, every time they had to say not guilty, but why they're not guilty, like, oh, because I wasn't there, oh, because I was with a mate, oh, it was 10 past 10, mm -hmm. oh, it was 10 o'clock, oh, the first time you said it was 10 o'clock. Now you're saying 10 past 10. Which one is it? Are you lying? Mm -hmm. you know, if we did that to a defendant, there would be potholes and problems as well that I, we could feast on you know so it's because they have a right to silence and because they don't have to do anything or say anything just sit there that this whole charade of justice plays out again and again mm -hmm. so really when we talk about the right to a fair trial I often just think it's not about whether the, de the defendant is having a fair trial it's about whether the victim is having a fair trial and I say the victim is not having a fair trial because <laughs> they don't even have legal representation for a start so that's what I spoke about last time too, just to tell uh, the listeners. I talked about the importance of a victim in a criminal jurisdiction having the right to a lawyer and to have legal standing, which means to be joined in that case. Those things are absolutely pivotal, but on top of the other things that I'm speaking about today. So yes, you need to have a stake, if you like, a stake or an interest in the criminal case. And of mm -hmm. course, even until we have that legal state defined, of course we have a legal stake in it. Of course the victim does because we're so invested in it. Our whole life is turned upside down the minute we tell. Of course we care about the outcome and have should have a say in it, um, but currently we don't. We don't have a say in it. We're just a bystander that's just watching our life either go down the gurgler or, um, you know, that our truth is sort of validated, which happens 1% of the time. So it's not very good sort of for us um, until we have these changes. But, you know, the um, really another problem that when I've spoken to a lot of uh, people that can change this very easily, they can introduce a bill into parliament and things like that. When I speak to them, like, for example, the police commissioner, um, they'll say to me, oh, very good idea, Ingrid, but all of the budget for law and order is spent on defendant services. And that's true because currently there aren't really victims there. We have, we have a bit of, you know, the, um, the handholders and things like that, but that budget doesn't meet, you know, what uh, we spend on rehabilitation for defendants and all the defendant programs. It's just unbelievable. And on one hand, it looks good because it looks like, oh, we're trying to reintegrate them into society and, you know, have them sort of come back and not be worse off than when they went in or, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. But it's been proved time and time again that rehabilitation doesn't work. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the reoffending is is mm -hmm. rife. 
and it, you know then you come down to arguments about what makes a pedophile or, or or someone that sexually assaults someone they're not all pedophiles i understand that but you know what makes it that character what makes them attracted to children and so you know some arguments are that you can't really take the pedophile out of a pedophile like it's in their dna some some people would ask you um you know would say that it's in their makeup and other people say no it's social conditioning it comes down to you know if a if a young boy was abused as a child then he's more likely to go on and abuse young children but that's been found to not be true it does happen in some cases but not to the extent where we rely on that as a reason why so many children are sexually assaulted it's actually not true and we found that through our work with the royal commission Inst institutional responses to child sexual abuse and another big factor that backs up that point marianne is that i don't think it is social conditioning and that it's happened to you and so you go on to do it because if it did let's look at who sexually abuses right it's been proved through statistics that it's mainly men and feet and uh, male children right that's sexually abused so if it is environmental where are all the huge numbers of female abusers mm -hmm. because if so many females are sexually abused where are the statistics that show you know that there's equal numbers say for example of women women and men that sexually abuse children it's not true it's not happening like that so rather than going oh no well you're a feminist you're anti-men i'm not at all but i think we need to look intelligently at why it seems to be a higher proportion of males that behave in this way that sexually assault compared to females. And I don't think it comes down to whether you were sexually assaulted or not, because as I said, otherwise it'd be pretty much equal numbers of female and male um, abusers, and it's not. So, but let's look at this intelligently, let's dig down. And, you know, if there is something that, you know, causes men to feel this way or be sexually attracted to children, I mean, we need to stop demonizing it and look at it and just face facts. Because if you look at our porn industry and the sex industry, I just can't tell you most porn, it's as if men are idolizing having sex with, uh, you know, female children, you know, how many women dress up as a schoolgirl, as, mm -hmm. as a fetish, as a sexual sort of turn on, it's high, it's high numbers, right? Mm -hmm. So rather than being repulsed by it or saying, oh, but that's just, you know, for a naughty little time or whatever, but think about it. It's that whole virgin conquest, you know, is what I would argue. It's that idea. And it's been around for eons. <laughs> if you look at, you know, who has had sex with who through history, um, you know, it's always been about, you know, a lot of adults having sex with younger children and uh, you know and it, on, on it goes and you can see it through art history um in my first book i talk about that and you know just how we all sort of queue up to see these amazing masterpieces around the world you know we go to the louvre museum and wow 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 but i mean so much of it is about sexualized children if you look at the imagery and so you know i'm just saying as a sophisticated intelligent society now that you know has broken down a lot of barriers a lot of you know a lot of misconceptions think about what is the raw data that we're left with let's look at it cleverly and think well you know if there's a i don't know <laughs> like it's terribly crude of me but say for example you know when you desex a, a male dog it sort of calms down a bit and i'm just saying in terms of testosterone like you know if it's not testosterone i don't know but let the scientists come in and fill these gaps and mm -hmm. if there is some sort of vaccine i don't know a male vaccine against violence it sounds preposterous but the thing is our statistics of male violence against women would support anything we need help like our, our men need help because 
their ability to just snap or their ability to murder or hurt people, it just seems to be skyrocketing. Even though we're so educated and so many boys are being raised by feminist mothers and grandmothers, there seems to be a disconnect. Where are all these violent men coming from, if you like? You know, they're from me. I've got, you know, three boys, three biological sons and one stepson. Like where, where are these boys coming from? They're coming from people like me. They're not someone else's boys that have mm -hmm. got a problem. It's, it's DNA, you know, mm -hmm. is, is one possible argument. Well, it's my argument. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And people don't often like it, Marianne, because it sounds mm -hmm. radical. But I don't know, don't we need a radical solution for, for this violence where education in schools, you know what, it's, yeah, sounds good. Again, it's one of those do-gooder things. Really, is it stopping the statistics? Mm -mm. No. We're getting less murders and deaths like it's not. So I'm saying we have to scratch beneath that surface right. stuff and look at it. And even if it's ugly, we need to embrace ugly, like the ugly truth of whatever it is. I, you know, I think to myself, if women were behaving as a, as a whole population, if you like, without the divisions of race, you know, all the rest of it, if we just look at us as, as women, you know, in general and say our genetics you know, caused us, I don't know, every second child we have, we, we kill every second child. And it's a routine pattern. We see it. Wouldn't we be wanting to do something about it? Wouldn't we be saying, oh my God. So this is something that I've picked up on through my work in family law too, that, you know, again, the children just being used as pawns and it's just been, it's a revolting thing, but it is somehow connected with women, female uh, violence against women, I think, because when you look at, you know, how, Again, it's terrible to generalise, but, you know, I'm saying a lot of men behave in the family law cases. They just sort of see their children as, as property. And I'm saying there are some parallels that I've seen over, you know, 20 years of, of how men see a woman that leaves them, for example, as property. And so it's almost like a prick to their ego when mm -hmm. a woman wants to leave even peacefully she wants to leave peacefully she just wants to move on in her life there's you know there's no connection there anymore with her partner but how you know a lot of men process that is to be personally offended and it really they're sort of in a rampage like rather than just you know using it as a chance to reflect and renew mm -hmm. they sort of you know i don't know we've had in australia we had a terrible um case of you know a lady with her children that you know, was trying to leave and he burnt her alive, you know, with petrol and the children all in the car and they all died, three beautiful children and their mum. Hannah, uh, the last name, uh, I can't remember, but yeah, it was Hannah. And, you know, things like this still happen and they happen regularly. And so if we want to change it, it's all about if we want to change it. If we want status quo, you know, no one need listen to me. If we want the same system or if we think it generally works, then no one's going to listen. But if you know, once, once you work in this field and you see the numbers and the statistics, you can't help but, you know, want to change it and take some responsibility for your part in it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, because it's alarming. The stuff that I see is alarming. The stuff that my husband sees is alarming. And so anyway, mm -hmm. going and returning to the book, a lot of um, the, the Nolly Prosequi has... Um, a lot of material from my husband and his input as a criminal defence lawyer, because I think that's a very good perspective to sort of counterbalance my perspective. And so, you know, I always have answers from him because he sees things in a different light often um, to how I do, because we represent different clients on, on the opposite side. So, um, but it's been very interesting when I interviewed him for that book, a lot of the answers he gave were really telling and, could show me 
a lot. And one of the things he said to me was that when he gets a new client that's been accused of sexual assault and he asks them, did you do it? They always plead not guilty. They always say to him, no, never did it, never did it. But he said over time, as he develops a rapport with the person and as the case progresses, they often change to a plea of guilty. And that's in a high number. He, he reckons that most of his clients end up pleading guilty. And I said, oh, that's interesting because there's only a 1% conviction rate. So all of these clients of yours must be from that camp. Your, your, your clients come in the 1% camp where they're found guilty, you know? Um, so I, I just don't know. I don't know. I think it's just the system that allows them to do that and play along and, and plead not guilty for as long as they can and then change to a plea of guilty, you know, because, our system encourages that because it's meant mm -hmm. to save the, the um, victim from going through a trial. And so there are incentives to an early plea of guilt. But, you know, really to me, starting the whole process and putting them through it and then changing to not guilty at the end is really a cowardly thing to do. Mm -hmm. But rather than being angry with perpetrators for doing it, it's the system that that allows them to do it. And that's who we should be angry with. If we want to change that whole nonsense, then we need to really say, uh, you know, the plea needs to be made much earlier in the process. So I thought that was a, an important thing that I took away. But another thing that my husband um, was talking about was tendency and coincidence cases. And this is a really important thing, that when you're prosecuting sex assault, they, they relax the laws of evidence and change the Evidence Act in Australia to allow it to be easier to prove that a certain sexual assault happened based on the fact that the same modus operandi is had by that perpetrator. So, for example, in my book, uh, I cover a lot of case studies. Um, and in the book, um, John talks about, you know, a fictional client, but that constantly... Um, had the same modus operandi, which was to cover the victim's face with cloth, mm -hmm. with any sort of cloth, a bit of jumper or a towel or anything, before he sexually assaulted his victims. And it was intergenerational abuse that had gone on for decades. And so previous outcomes of, of criminal cases against this particular individual were used in this case because it showed that there was a tendency for this perpetrator to behave in this certain way and that helped prove the case because these victims weren't even known to each other across many decades and so if you know the, the most recent victim is saying this is what happened in a certain way and then that relates back to past behavior of this same alleged perpetrator um, that they sort of allowed that to happen in sex assault cases to make it more likely to prove. Now, while that is wonderful, and I, I applaud that change because I think it's really frustrating for a survivor to not be able to say, well, hold on, that's what he's been doing for the last 30 years and he's done that to me and used this cloth and it's the way he does it and sets it all out, you know, on the bed or whatever it is. Um, you know, to me, that would just be horrible to have that and not be able to sort of use that past stuff. And so, you know, I think in sex assault, that is a great um, change that they've made in the legislation. But big criticism. We had the George Pell case in Australia that was running worldwide. And our state prosecution service decided that they would bring the case against George Pell as a tendency and coincidence case in terms of the swimmers. So that was one of the trials. There were a number of trials, but the one against the swimmers. But the thing is, 
it almost appears to me that the state set up the case for failure because they brought it as a tendency and coincidence case, you know, saying, oh, yes, um, you know, Mr. Pell behaved in this sort of way under the water with children, blah, blah, blah. They were the allegations. And so they were trying to say that that was a pattern of behaviour. But as Justice Kids so rightfully said, there is no tendency for Mr. Pell to behave in this way because there were no proved allegations, no past criminal cases against George Pell that showed that he behaved in that way. So why on earth would the State Prosecution Service bring a case against him in that way? And I say it was doomed to fail. I mean, it just to me, it looked like they didn't want a conviction against him. And this is a problem. And why I'm coming in on this is that those survivors that made those allegations they did all they can. They did all they could. They, were, they went on national TV. They were brave, you know, like so many of the Weinstein victims and things like that that you see. Um, you know, they come out on the media. They did everything right. They followed everything that the prosecution service told them. They, you know, were just oh, almost, you know, very uh, managed by the police. Um, you know, they just listened to everything. They did everything. They were in the right place at the right time. They just were totally cooperative, you know, because they've got their life on the line and their integrity on the line. What, I mean, to me, the case didn't run. Like, the trial didn't run because the State Prosecution Service then withdrew it, nolly prosequi, right, mm -hmm. title of my book. But without, they, they couldn't have a say. They couldn't say, well, hold on, that's not fair. But hold on, what about my evidence? It's the power is taken from you as a survivor and the State Prosecution Service will do what it does. It just will just make a snap decision and do it. But to me, their heart wasn't in it because they didn't bring it in a way that was ever going to succeed. Because straight away, Justice Kidd said, well, you can't bring a case like this. This cake mix approach is wrong. They were going to just lump all of the survivors in together and hope that that sort of showed a tendency. But he said tendency has to be a past tendency that was proved. So already proved against that person. But that wasn't proved. There was no allegation before these gentlemen. So crazy stuff. But I'm saying those survivors, I can't remember if it was was four years it ran or something three or four years five years I've lost track but it just seemed to go forever in the appeals and the high court and the you know the, the um, superior cases you know in the court of appeal all of those hearings and all of those years of anxiety and and doubt and coming out and people judging you and knowing oh you're the one that was sexually assaulted you're the sex man you know this mm -hmm. is how my clients feel they don't want to be identified as that so it's a big deal to come out but then to have it almost shoved in their face but not by the defendant not by the defense counsel by the state prosecution service and this is why i keep saying if they had a lawyer if those survivors had their own lawyer that could put evidence you know refute what the police or the defense counsel say they would actually have half a chance because in that case and i'm going to use that case as an example because i was their lawyer for other matters and in the royal commission and then if I was able to have a say, I would have seen the police brief, right, which is what the defendant gets to see. I would have seen all the paperwork and I would have nipped that problem in the bud right from the start, mm -hmm. Marianne. I would have said, hold on, police. You're bringing this as a tendency and coincidence case. Go back, change the charges, make it different. Don't put it this way because that's doomed to fail. You can't bring a tendency and coincidence case. That would have been in the first few weeks of me getting the police brief it would have been dealt with and sorted and either the opp so the prosecution service could have brought it back in a different way you know tinkered with that but i'm saying they set it up wrong right from the start 
do you think the survivors knew that, Marianne? Mm-mm. No, they didn't. Because the prosecution service don't tell survivors any of the legal mumbo jumbo. Because they're trying to, you know, it's patronising, but they're trying to save them from it. Don't you think that the survivors had a right to know that the state prosecution service don't know what they're doing or deliberately did it wrong? It's one or the other. I mean, do they not know what they're doing? Our best senior lawyers in the land of Australia? Are we to believe that? Or do we just think, oh, they made a boo-boo? It was mm-hmm. a bloody big boo-boo. Mm-hmm. And it cost the taxpayer a fortune running that case against George Powell all those years. So, you know, they need to get the facts straight and the story straight to survivors. And I'm saying hoping that they're just going to tell us the truth all the time is a fool's errand for the survivor. What the survivor needs is a lawyer chucked there in the mix. Their own lawyer that represents their own interests can look at all the legal paperwork filed by the police, make sure the charges are right, make sure the charges, like, in, for example, Marianne, in my case, my sex assault case, they brought charges of rape, right? It was called rape, the charge. Four counts of rape and then other bits and pieces. It wasn't rape at that time. In the mid-80s, it was called indecent assault of a minor under, you know, 10, of indecent assault of a minor under 16. They didn't bring the charges right. So what do you think Defence Council did? They don't say, oh, here, we'll give you an opportunity to bring the right charges. No. What happens is when it goes to court, they say, right, Your Honour, where um, these charges need to be chucked out. They're not right. There's no charge of rape at that time. The time period's wrong, blah, blah, blah. And that's what happened. They chucked out all my rape charges and the OPP, the prosecution, didn't bring back correct charges that were commensurate with the years of offending. So my case just disappeared, poof, in a puff of smoke. And again, the survivor can't do anything about it. But think, insert a victim's lawyer. So if I had a lawyer for me in the criminal case against my perpetrator, they would have seen the charge sheet by police and they would have seen it's wrong. They would have checked. They would have checked it and Mm -hmm. said, how can you bring a charge of rape? when rape didn't, wasn't even called rape then. Like, mm. hello, like ding-a-ling-a-ling, you know. So we need, the survivor needs a, a victim's lawyer that is able to make sure that the case is put correctly from the start so that the foundations are right. So when it comes to the trial, you know, it's not a legal loophole where the defendant says, oh, sorry, but the charges aren't right. That should be picked up right from the start, you know. But instead, defence counsel look like they're clever and make a fool of the prosecution service time and time again. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can just tell you, police hate my husband. They hate him because mm-hmm. he wins and he makes mm-hmm. them look foolish, you know. But think about it. If you put a victim's lawyer in there, it's not just about whether the defendant is found guilty or not guilty. There's a survivor in there that is going to go underground further, probably self-harm, if not commit suicide, as a result of what happens in that criminal case. And at the moment, no one's talking about them because there's no legal person talking about them, right? And this has to stop. This has to stop. Gloria Allred, she can do things in a civil jurisdiction for her clients in America, but she can't do anything for them in a criminal jurisdiction because they have no representation in a criminal jurisdiction. So again, I can't do anything here in Australia either for them. This is the problem that we have ad nauseum. So We need to fix this and it needs to be fixed. Otherwise, you know what's going to happen? Perpetrators are going to keep getting away with it. No matter how much we change that legislation about consent, it does not matter. It's almost becomes a moot point because if in action, the prosecutions aren't happening and aren't there, 
what's the point of having perfect legislation about what sex assault really looks like in this day and age? Like, mm -hmm. you know, it's just, it, we're, we're putting the cart before the horse, mm -hmm. if you like. We really need to get the foundation stones right. So, you know, this is a really, really important thing. But here in Australia, what we've got too, we've got a big problem with court decisions, right? Precedent that happens in these areas. And I talked a bit about this last time, but we have had, the Court of Appeal, which is a very senior court here in Australia, so it's called a superior court, but it just means a mm. court high up. What that Court of Appeal said is that stop bringing these historical sex abuse cases. They said that at a time where I don't know how many Americans follow Australian you know, political news, but our former federal attorney general, Christian Porter, had allegations made against him by... Um, a particular lady known as Kate, and she um, died, like, you know, to suicide last year. But, you know, there's been a huge hullabaloo over that case. And what I'm saying is, again, I go back to the hypocrisy of the spin factory and the idea that there's justice for sex assault, is that Australians are absolutely hell-bent. Like, they are just dog at a bone about Christian Porter you know, and, and what he apparently did, right? But it's just pure allegations, Marianne, and they can't be proved in a criminal jurisdiction, okay, because she is no longer alive, okay? And so what you have are these allegations, and but everyone wants to make mincemeat out of, you know, this former Attorney General of ours, but I'm saying why the concern for justice for a now deceased sex assault person where... Like I'm saying, the irony of it is we have thousands today of living sex assault survivors that don't get any media attention. No one even knows their name. Who's trying to get justice for them? What, they're relying on the prosecution service that doesn't work 99% of the time. It's a failure rate to get a conviction. So what I'm saying is why the focus on that? You know why? Because it's easy. It's easy to get political mileage out of that. Where is the media focusing on the live survivors and how there's no justice for them? No, they don't want to do that because then they've got to ruffle feathers and trample on, you know, their employers. Because, you know, if you're a journalist, who's employing you? You know, they don't want to say something out of turn. They don't want to say something that's too much the truth. So what they'll do is just focus on this, you know, now deceased lady and, you know, her quest for justice and how she didn't get it. And I think wouldn't it be easier to go on a quest for justice for someone who's still alive mm -hmm. that can answer, that can act? Like, no, but they don't want to look at those cases because they all fail. So that's what I'm saying. It's a charade, mm -hmm. right? The quest for justice and getting justice are two separate things. The quest looks amazing. It looks really brilliant. And that's where, you know, certain politicians get their political mileage, certain journalists get their mileage. They're made to look wonderful, right? You've got the Australian of the Year doing all this legislative change. It all looks good. It looks like lots is happening for survivors. And it's not. And in my book, Nolly Prosequi, I go through and I actually address what all of the big wigs say. I look at them in turn, each one, and I say, okay, if you say this, how can we have this, blah, blah, blah. And so I go through and it's very interesting because when you see what all the people with a platform say, you lose hope because you realise that there really is nothing out there and people are just playing games with this stuff. And, you know, if survivors' lives weren't hanging in the balance, I wouldn't care. Maybe I'd worry about the environment or something else, you know, like more than I do about this. But 
I'm talking about survivors' lives, survivors we don't even know that haven't come forward, you know, that are sitting in their house and, and trying to be brave because that's the media message in Australia, be brave and tell. And I'm just trying to cut it down. I'm trying to save them from further re-trauma and legal re-trauma, which is what I talked about last time too, you know. But um, it, it really is important because otherwise you've got a very fragile percentage of the population that, you know, really can't transcend this stuff. You know, they really, just that Pell case alone, the survivors, and you know, went up and down. They were in trouble with the law. They, they got back on the rails again. Then they went off the rails again. The period of time, you know, the law calls just an adjournment. Sounds like a nice word, adjournment, doesn't it? That adjournment, that can mean life or death to a survivor. They can't hang on when cases are adjourned for two months, five months, six months, over te legal technicalities, over big issues, or someone's not available. You know, some of them are legitimate reasons, but others are just legal sort of process. Survivors can't withstand that. You know, it's, it's just... Do you think they're counting on that? You know, do, is well, it the judges and you know justice system are they counting on well let's drag this out maybe they'll just 100%. go away 100 percent, marianne yep and i am a pessimist and i have a right to be it's through lived experience so i'm such a pessimistic person on this stuff yes they know that that's what happens they know that survivors give up right how many survivors even if you know a very small handful of cases get to court but then they know just delay everything, delay, delay, mm -hmm. delay, delay the hearings, delay all the administrative hearings, unavailable, seek an adjournment, seek another adjournment, oh, off to mediation, oh, that mediator's not available, oh, we'll have to book another one, oh, they're unavailable, oh, we haven't got the report, oh, no, the report writer's away on holidays, oh, blah, 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 like, it just goes on and on. That whole, it, it looks very good, like, the court's always polite to you and always, oh, yes, have we got that? They're very officious, yes, we've got that document. No, we're waiting on this document. Okay, yes, when can we adjourn? And it always comes down to the uh, diary of the defence counsel and the prosecutor and when they're available. And that also is legitimate. You look at it and say, well, you know, they're, they're not available other times. That's legitimate. But don't you think, I mean, no one actually checks the veracity of those dates and when they're unavailable. I think half the time it's just deliberate delay. Now I've got a trial there, I've got a trial there that they already know is fallen over probably. Sorry, but I am pessimistic. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it just comes down to, it's just officious diary, mm -hmm. diarising of dates. But survivors, like, just even one day or, or a week or a month, that's just a killer when there's, when there's a, a criminal case hanging in abeyance, right. you know. And that also has to stop because at the end of the day, see, no one sees that they're to blame for the survivor's plight. They really don't. Judges don't think it's them because, you know, even when they don't sentence, I'm going to get onto this as well today, but, you know, modern sentencing practices are another big problem because judges, even if they want to give a maximum sentence, they're often restricted because, you know, their sister, um, you know, judges and stuff have already made a lower sentence. And so they're sort of bound by that precedent. But, you know, we often see very minimum sort of sentences in, in the sentencing range. They always opt for the lower end and, you know, things like that. But that is absolutely contributes to a, a survivor's trauma. And that's for the 1% that actually get a conviction. But, you know, I, even then I'm saying they still complain. It's not like the 1% feel they've got justice because then they're often, once you get that conviction, then they're not happy about the sentence, you know, the period of the sentence. Um, and so that is a 
a huge problem as well. But, you know, judges contribute to the problem. Defence lawyers contribute to the problem. But again, as I've said last time, let's not just demonise defence lawyers because the real problem victims face isn't the defence lawyer. The fact is that they haven't got a lawyer that can put the defence lawyer in their place. That's mm -hmm. the big one. They need their own lawyer to represent them. So that's a big thing. But, you know, um, back at the police station, Police are contributing to the trauma and the legal re-trauma as well, you know. That sometimes you get a good policeman, sometimes you get a bad one, you know. Um, you know. They don't often communicate with you because you're not their client as a victim. So it's not like when you ring the lawyer and, you know, expect your lawyer to ring you back. The police, they're not answerable to you as a victim, you know. There's a, there's a victim's charter, but the things they're meant to do, but there's no impetus. There's no, there's really no reason for them to call you, you know. You're, you're sort of... Um, beside the point as a victim in a criminal case. And so that's just, it's, it's awful for me to say that, but you really are. I prefer to tell survivors out there the truth. It's, uh, mm -hmm. you're beside the point. But all of these people, Marianne, can do their job. And I probably said this last time, they can tick their box on what they're meant to do for the survivor. You know, the way they're meant to ask questions, the way they're meant to, you know, run through things with them. It's all very politically correct, but it doesn't equal justice. And all of these professionals know this, you know, they do um, continuing professional development together, you know, <laughs> they, they make sure they're abreast of all the latest things. They go to conferences together, you know, they, they socialise together. Um, they know the trajectory of survivors, you know, and, but no one is actively doing something to fix this stuff. You know, everybody still relies on coops, the support dog to pat, that that's somehow going to ameliorate that, you know, multitude of sins that, you know, victims face in the legal system. But, you know, we, we're getting a dog. That is not going to take away our problems, I'm sorry. A, a lawyer will. A lawyer will be a great start, having a victim's lawyer. But, yeah, so I talk about this in, in uh, Nolly Prosequi. But, you know, it really, it comes down to survivors understanding what the problems are. Because when survivors are asked for their input, to change something and to be more survivor focused. What it really depends on is, um, you know, the, the survivor having a certain amount of knowledge about the legal system and why they are in the position they're in. Because otherwise they really can't, um, you know, give the right answers for change because they've been sort of fed this spin and so if the questions are framed in a very vague way, which I've noticed they often are, they're often, you know, framed in a way that the victim doesn't really know what the, what the question is asking and what it's getting at. Um, you know, you end up having data from survivors that doesn't really go to things like, oh, yes, we need our own lawyer. They don't actually understand they don't have their own lawyer yet. And this is a huge problem because often the prosecution, the lawyer for the prosecution, the victim thinks that's their lawyer. And mm -hmm. so if you're asking a victim what changes are needed to help them get justice, they're never going to say their own lawyer unless they know they haven't got one. <laughs> so, Great. Oh, how sad. Yes, it is really sad. And that is the problem. You know, they often say, oh, we want someone that could fight for us. You know, the prosecutor, often um, in victim surveys, you know, there are quotes, you know, from victims that um, put out there. And the victims say, oh, we wanted someone that would fight. Like our prosecutor didn't seem to fight like the defence counsel did. And the thing is, 
Number one, it's not their lawyer, that prosecutor. Number two, of course, they don't fight like the defendant because the prosecution service are actually bound by certain protocols and procedures. They're meant to be an impartial prosecutor, you see. They're not there for the victim. They're meant to be impartial. They're meant to be doing an impartial investigation then bringing charges and trying to have those charges proved in court. But they're not on the victim's side, if you like. They're not jumping on the victim's bandwagon. They're not there. It, as I said last time, they are in a conflict of interest with the victim. The police and the victim are in a legal conflict of interest because until their interests are separated with separate lawyers, it's, they're in a conflict. <laughs> They're in a conflict. So, you know, definitely the, the police lawyer and the police, the, the prosecution are not there for the victim. So it's really, really important, you know. But um, the other thing that I wanted to talk about today too, because I've got bogged down in all the, the criminal stuff, but really um, it's about the interplay between the three jurisdictions, the, the family law system, which I talked about last time, the criminal law system and intervention orders. And some of the case studies in Nolly Prosequi go through that and talk about the ugliness of, of the outcomes for the survivor um, when their child makes allegations of sexual assault by the other parent. Um, that parent has a real problem going through and navigating that system. And uh, like I said last time, so that people today understand if they didn't hear the last podcast, um, the criminal case is the pivotal case that underpins the family law case, the intervention order case, and the civil case. Any other cases, or also a victims of crime case. Um, all of these cases are dependent for their success on whether the criminal case was successful. So if you raise allegations, sexual assault allegations in a family law context, and then they're not proved in a criminal context, when it comes back to the family court, the family court, you know, it can't, don't have anything to help them because those allegations weren't proved in a, in a criminal context. And so that is a huge issue that, that, we, that we have when we're looking at sex assault because, you see, not all sex assault cases start with a criminal case. It'll be, you know, someone from child protection gets tipped off by someone at school about, you know, a child that's made certain disclosures. And, you know, then, and it's sort of, you know, it sort of goes around in a, in a roundabout way. It's not always, you know, that someone goes to the police and it's a perfect thing and then they have a family law case. It doesn't happen like that. So when I get a client, they'll come to me at any point in the system. They might come to me for an intervention order and then I realise through the allegations, they start off very, you know, sanitised. And then deep down in there, there's also sexual coercion and a whole lot of other ugly stuff that comes out. So sometimes I first meet a client at that point in the system in intervention order. And then sometimes I meet them through being a family law client. They come to me for advice about their child. And then it comes out that, you know, some of the concerns they've got about a parent might be, that, you know, when they spend time with them, there's sexual assault allegations. So that happens in that order. Um, and then some people come to me and they're saying, oh, gee, can you help me get the department off my back? You know, I want my kid back, blah, blah, blah. There's allegations, but I didn't do anything, you know. So sometimes they'll come to me at that point. So it depends on how the case starts as to, where that allegation begins in the public realm. And then, Marianne, the big issue is the narrative and outcome of the very first time that allegation is tested, that will determine the path. So if child protection don't do a good job and don't determine that there's sexual assault allegations, 
what happens if you are a protective parent and keep beating that sex assault drum and keep saying, no, but it's definitely happened? It's ugly. You're made to look like a liar. And that will continue. So almost the very first analysis and the first pigeonhole you're put into as a parent by whichever part of the system, you know, that sort of stays with you and you're almost branded. So I, in Nolly Prosequi, go through some excellent um, case studies of, you know, they're false clients, but it's an amalgam of all bits and pieces of my clients and, and, and other cases I've heard about over the years. But, you know, when they have just tried to keep their child safe and they just, it's a relentless sort of life quest because if they can't get traction through child protection or the police, you know, then they're still trying to act protectively. They're trying to do other things to keep their child safe. And it just, it never ends until the child becomes an adult, really. And, you know, it's just terrible, as I said last time, just holding their hand through all of these jurisdictions that really we haven't caught up when it comes to sex assault. But, you know, they don't give up because who gives up on their child's safety? You know, it's a, it would be awful. You That's almost giving up on yourself. So, so many of my clients don't give up, but it's almost they lose everything. They lose all their money. You know, mm -hmm. they lose all their time, energy. Some of them stop working because it's actually cheaper to get a legal aid lawyer, like a state funded lawyer, mm -hmm. and not work than it is to work, not have time with their child just to pay the legal bills. Like it's, you know, and so I'm thinking a lot of women, particularly women, are giving up their autonomy and their right to work to actually keep going in their quest to keep their child safe. And then on the other hand, I have some clients that just snap and go, you know what, it's not going to work. I just give up. They're just going to have to be with that parent because nothing that I can do can change it. I'm never going to get awarded, you know, the old custody or residence or whatever it's called. It always has a new name, but you know, the live with or spend time, you know, my child's never going to get live with with me. And so, you know, I just give up. They're just going to have to keep them safe as possible in that place, but it's actually worse to drag them through a legal proceeding on top of what they're going through. So I have, you know, people making imperfect decisions out of two, you know, the lesser evil of evils, and it's awful watching them do this. And I think I go back to the original root of the problem and I just always think it comes back to the prosecution or lack thereof of the sex assault allegations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that is really a huge problem. But also, in terms of a, you know, a bit of a bright note for today, right. what yeah. we're looking at out of these advocates, because, you know, the politicians just say what everyone wants to hear. I see you, I hear you, I believe you. You know, that's the Premier of Victoria in our state, of, uh, in Australia and Victoria. Um, Dan Andrews says, I see you, I hear you, I believe you. But it doesn't have any traction or meaning because our criminal law doesn't give the convictions that, that shows that there's the belief in what we're saying is true. So, um, you know, when you look at that, you sort of start to lose heart. But in Victoria, we have Victims of Crime Commissioner and her name is Fiona McCormack. And she is the first person that has stood up and said, the victim survivor needs a lawyer and needs legal standing in a criminal case. And because of that, I'm heartened, but she has got a big wall of resistance against her because there's all the people for the status quo that say, oh, no, you know, Fiona, how can we add another lawyer into the criminal system? It's just going to create chaos and it'd just be too hard. And then that will essentially mean that it's two lawyers against one because you've got, you know, the, the prosecution and the victim's lawyer. So that's sort of two lawyers for the victims versus the poor old 
uh, you know, accused has only got one lawyer, you know, all these sorts of ridiculous arguments. Because as I've said already, the prosecutor is not there as the victim's lawyer. So it's not two against one. I could actually argue it's two against one currently. Because if the prosecution service is only successful 1% of the time and you've got a defence counsel, isn't that two against one? <laughs> two against the victim? To me, it looks like that. But, you know, the, this is the sea of, of backlash that I think she's going to face. But currently what she did, she called her own inquiry. So it's a, been called by the commissioner herself. Even though we've had so many government inquiries, we've had state government inquiries, we've had federal government inquiries, we've had royal commissions, we've had, last time I talked about the ridiculous failure of our redress scheme in Australia, absolutely ridiculous in, in addressing, you know, what survivors need, which is ongoing care for their abuse, um, absolutely fell short. We've had the national apology, we've had all of those things, but again, none of them recommended that the victim gets their own lawyer. And I think, well, after all we know, how can these professionals, you know, backtrack, if you like, and not actually state the bleeding obvious, which is to give them autonomy and, and a legal say. Um, so this commissioner is really brave and really good and doing the right thing. But I look at her background and I wonder why she's so different to the others. And of course, it's because she comes from the DV, domestic violence field. That's where she's worked all of her professional life. And so it takes one to know one. It takes someone from the trenches to understand where the systemic failures arise. And she can see it in her role as the Victims of Crime Commissioner. And this is a unique role, the Victims of Crime Commissioner. It was set up in 2015 as a result of the Royal Commission into institutional responses to child sex abuse. Because the commissioners decided, look, there obviously are gaps. We need to address why survivors aren't getting justice. And so this particular position, a new commissioner was set up just for that purpose. So she is actually the first independent spokesperson of victims on a legal front, according to me, unless I, I think I've got my facts straight. I can't think of another person that has legal standing for survivors like she does. She actually, you know, sort of can cover that, that chasm that I explained that there isn't a legal voice for the victims other than a few renegades like me, you know, and a few other sort of advocates. There isn't actually anyone, the go-to person, legally speaking, for victims, because we're still not seen as a legal entity. And as I keep saying, right, in the cases against the institutions, right, we got rid of something called the Ellis defence. And this is really interesting, Marianne. Years ago, when, you know, say choir boys were suing for sex assault, you know, against a priest or a, or a diocese or a church or a religion, um, the Ellis defence was used to say, no, well, the church isn't a legal entity, so you can't sue it. So what we did, we abolished the Ellis defence. And so that's why now finally you can sue a church or sue the diocese, you know, or sue a priest. You actually now don't have that defence called the Ellis defence. So that was named after John Ellis, a very brave choir boy that tried to sue the church and failed at that time. So, yeah, it's a, a terrible thing that he went through because, you know, again, the church were hiding behind the fact that they're not a legal entity. But, yeah, since we changed that, look, success and justice. And that's what I say in this area, right? Until the church was a legal entity, there was no point suing it because you couldn't, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what I say to survivors. Until a survivor is a legal entity, there is no point reporting sex assault. Until they're a legal entity and have a say, there is no point. Unless you think you're going to be Cinderella and in the 1% camp that get 
<laughs> a um, conviction against your perpetrator, good luck. And if you are, and you still know that statistic and you want to do it, well, good luck to you. And I mean that, you know, sincerely, I mean that. But truly, I thought I was being a lawyer myself, having a criminal defence lawyer husband, having practised for 20 years with all my clients, I thought I would be successful. And I had a taped confession where he confessed, admitted it, and apologised and said he regretted it all his life. And that didn't get me a conviction. So, you know, you couldn't accuse me of, of being, you know, sort of pessimistic for the wrong reasons. So that's why I think someone brave and beautiful and their whole life ahead of them that, you know, is, is building up the courage, don't do it to your life. Don't do it to yourself. Because it's not just the non-conviction that you won't get. You'll also lose so much during that journey. You're not going to have the fan club that, you know, the Australian of the Year does. You're not going to have people in the media that care about why your case didn't go well. They don't want to know that story. That's not the media story they want. They want the golden glowing girl that got justice and because she's brave and she's fighting. That's the message. And that's the message, as I said last time, because it keeps the boys in work. It keeps the spin factory alive. It keeps the little socket units, the sex offence units all there and bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and ready to hear your story and come down and we'll make a statement. It keeps the system and the cogs churning. And that's what it is. It's all about that. But that's why I don't want survivors to be legal fodder anymore. We're used as legal fodder, even though we're not don't have a legal say and we're not a legal entity. We're used by the legal system as legal fodder you know, all these judges are getting so much money running all these sex assault trials, but what for? I mean, if 1% succeed, what are we running them for? We've got a whole sex abuse criminal justice industry feeding off survivors, but for no net effect for survivors. I'm just, I can't believe people should be outraged about this, Marianne. They should be, I don't know, tearing off their legal wigs and going, come on, this is crazy. I don't want this for my daughter, my wife, my grandmother, my uncle. You know, it, there are male survivors too. You know, I don't want other people to go through this, you know. But are they saying it? No, they're not. No, they're not. They're giving us coops. Mm -hmm. The Labrador to Pat, right? This is why I'm angry. <laughs> I'm I don't blame keep... you because yeah. it keeps turning in more money. It's a, it's a big cash cow. Correct. It's a cash cow. That's exactly right. And I mentioned the reference to Spotlight, that wonderful mu uh, movie um, about, you know, Boston and, uh, you know, just, it is atrocious. And I just, I remember the whole quote from that and I love it. The line that just says, this is what happens. One man, you know, turns to another man and makes it all go away, you know, and all of a sudden no one sees it, you know, and that's, that's what it is. It just takes one good man to not do anything about it. You know, all of those you know, old sayings, it's, it's all true. It's all true. We just stand by and we're either indifferent or we wish survivors well. You know, once a year we donate to, I don't know, a women's refuge or something like that. That is not going to help justice. That's not going to bring justice. They're good things along the way. There's a whole, you know, industry. And I understand that, you know, everything that changes is good. But what I'm saying is the real area that would fix survivors, I reckon I'd get rid of my PTSD overnight, Marianne. It's a bold, it's a bold claim, but I reckon it would work. If I got justice against my perpetrator, PTSD, bye-bye. That'd be my New Year's resolution. I reckon it would just disappear. It would literally disappear like my criminal case did. It would go poof and it'd be gone. It's because we're stuck, because we're disrespected and we don't have justice that the PTSD continues. I reckon I'd be, I'd have a new lease on life. 
I'd feel fresh and good and feel like I'm in charge. I've got autonomy again. I'd feel good about the world again if I had justice. Or B, plan B, if I didn't get justice, but people were busy squirreling away trying to fix it so that I did get justice. But option three, which is people pretend that they don't know me, people pretend that the system is working okay for survivors, that is not going to fix my PTSD. And that's why I'm angry, because I say we're at sea. We're at sea, whereas uh, you know, until one of us raises a hand, a few people follow us, but people are really getting on with their lives unless it's directly affected them, sex assault has affected them. And, you know, even those that are sort of in it sometimes, as I said, through lack of understanding and lack of legal knowledge, they don't actually know why they're in the position they're in. They just sort of internalise it and think there's something wrong with their individual case or they weren't strong enough or, you know, they just sort of go back and self-combust. That is also not an option that I ever want to see because that is because a whole lot of intelligent people are being quiet on what is going on. And I hate that. I think if you have knowledge, you have a social responsibility to improve the world in the area that you work. You know, if it was the environment and I knew something was untoward there, I'd be loud about that. But this is what I'm loud about because this is what I know. And all I can see is a lot of very intelligent people around me that just go yawn, hum, hum, ho, hum, you know, Merry Christmas. They don't care about this. <laughs> they don't care. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that's why I say there's such a cognitive dissonance between the idea that, you know, society does not condone sex assault and what we're doing about it when we know that it's happening and nothing's fixing it is just, just miles apart. You know, it's hard for me to sort of reconcile. Do you think Fiona McCormick is really yes. going to succeed? Ah, I have my doubts. I think it might take a number of years. Like, I don't think that the system's just going to snap into action and go, oh, we never thought of that before. Yes, Fiona, congratulations. They know this. They've been, they've been playing a game of cover-up. So, but what I like is that she's in a victim's seat. She's in the victim's voice seat. And so there might be more problem. And so I want people to be clever and think, well, what have we been fed all these years? We thought it was about us being brave and coming forward was the path to justice. All these years? How, you know, who allowed this? Who allowed this nonsense? That's what I want survivors to see. And that's why I've been saying it. But unfortunately, Marianne, I haven't had the platform. I've tried every opportunity, particularly my involvement in, you know, with the survivors during that Pell case. I went public in the media. But, you know, and the media did give me the time of day. And that's great. I appreciate the media that did. But there's also been a huge cover-up from the other side of the media um, mm -hmm. as to what I'm saying. And I think... But, you know, when Fiona McLeod says it, McCormack says it, um, sorry, Fiona McCormack says it, the Victims of Crime Commissioner, then, you know, that's going to carry, you know, further because she's got real gravitas in this area. But what I'm worried about is just that the fat cats in the area that are used to the status quo, you know, can easily sort of, you know, oh, I don't like know, just better. Her. Yeah. yeah, just, yeah, better the, her ability to do anything and to say anything. So she might just end up being, you know, banging on like me for years. I just don't know. You know, I, I'm hopeful because it's the closest we've got, but by the same token, I'm also real, realistic about how things work in Australia. Um, and I, you know, I know that the previous Victims of Crime Commissioner, Greg Davies, left his position early 
and you know made some comments to the radio that I heard listened back to and you know I think it was political he was pushing on about you know how victims are unrepresented in a courtroom but yet the victims taxes pay for this whole legal charade that is set up against them if you like because their taxes pay for all of those defense lawyers and that the prosecution service that's state that's taxes you know the judges the tip staff the jury fees everything but you know the victim doesn't have a lawyer but all their taxes pay for this charade what you know and i thought that was an excellent point that he made so there have been rumblings she's not the first and certainly i know i know i've been relentless i've just like every day i do something in terms of advocacy every day um, mm. on this on this topic alone um, but you know there are other people that are doing it too but the ones that have a platform as i've said are sidestepping this issue they don't raise it on national tv our, our national station it's completely avoided this issue of the victim not having a lawyer no one has said it no one's raised it but yet all of these media people so many of them have a law degree and know what's going on you know it's just it's inexcusable the people with a platform are keeping this silent. So it must be that they're told not to say it. And that's just not right. That is just so wrong. Exactly. <laughs> well, I'd like to have you back on again. Um, yes. This was fascinating. And, you know, it's sad, but at least it seems like there's a glimmer of hope with Fiona McCormick. Yes. So yes. hopefully, you know, maybe in time, things will change. We, we have yes. to hope for change. We've got well, to. Well, I, I do think so. And I look at America and I think they must be doing the same thing because all these, like Gloria Allred and her band are just fabulous. You know, there's so many strong female, you know, lawyer advocates. And, you know, I think this is the gap for victims of sex assault this is the gap and if we want to fix it this is where we need to put our energy into this not really education campaigns about keeping children safe at school and their body is theirs all of that sounds good but again how can a little child fend off a, a you know a pedophile really like someone three times that you know five times their weight and size mm -hmm. and all the rest of it. like it's got problems because i'm saying if, if, if our society's advocates answer is to make children stronger, it's almost to me passing the buck and saying, you know what, adults can't solve this problem. So we'll get children just to be their own advocate and to stop it happening at the start because prevention, Marianne, is better than a cure. I mean, it's so simplistic and ridiculous. That approach, I'm sorry, I really do see massive holes with that approach. It sounds good. Like, of course, I want children to know their body's theirs and all of that. That's my underpants area. I, I know all that. Great. But I'm saying it only really is going to take effect to a certain extent. The real justice and thing is all these bright children that you're going to re-educate about how important their autonomy is, where are they going to go when they decide, oh, well, then this person touched me. What happens? What happens when the teacher has mandatory reporting? Well, nothing. I've just told you. It's a 1% conviction rate. So don't you think that we're raising a whole lot of very angry little children that are going to be angrier than me? because they've been taught all of this about them and they've got this sense of you know how important they are in the world and that they're a valuable member of society to then be devalued by a legal system they haven't even got the right to a lawyer you know crazy so yeah you know, i do see problems so yeah i'd like to come back i would um when i come back i think i might talk about too some of the changes that have been brought by the advocates and start to really look at those issues you know in a bit more depth and then maybe even some of the um reports may have come back 
from we've currently got um, you know a few inquiries running. There's a government inquiry into our criminal justice system as well, and so we're waiting for that report to come back. So hopefully, when these reports come back, because Marianne, everything's about the report to government, and then stage two is is the government going to adopt the recommendations of that report? So you know, it's a it's a long road, and but I realise that. But what I'm saying is too. This is long enough. Like I have been on this forever, but it just seems like such a basic human right that we have the right to a legal position in a case that's all about us and what happened to us. To me, that is just fundamental. And I think I said it last time as the vote. This is essentially like women and children and, you know, some men on occasion not having the vote yet. And so, of course, we're not going to have, you know, our interests represented if we can't vote. <laughs> so, you know. Exactly. This is number one, number one thing to fix. Mm -hmm. Well, don't, don't jump off. Okay. Yeah. No, <laughs> Slam, I won't. <laughs> Slam the Gavels, a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. Please join us again here with Attorney Irwin and other guests. And I totally appreciate you, Ingrid Irwin. Thank you so much. Just such a pleasure. I just, I can't share enough. I just love the time. Thank you so much for giving me that time. Well, glad and hello, to have America. You. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Good on you. <laughs>